for most of us, the movie of about to go home and all that's going to happen is only getting more compelling. And the stars of, those, of that movie is really our significant relationships who we're going back to. And there's this swirl of apprehension and excitement and gladness and a whole mixture for many. And some folks here, the, the two-month people, have already begun exploring how to be in that presence and, and commune and con- have conversations, and the rest of us will be doing so more. So this world of relating in a very real way is right in front of us. Meister Eckert says, This world would not have been created if we could experience God without it. This is in the same kind of spirit as the line we know so well from Zen Master Dogen, to be enlightened is to be intimate with all things. We intuit that our path is really one of relating that our path is really one of relating in a very immediate and vital way with the beings of our life. Now this is one of my favorite relating stories by Andrea Shah. A certain Bektashi dervish was respected for his piety and appearance of virtue. Whenever anyone asked him how he had become so holy, he always answered, I know what is in the Quran. Now one day he had just given this reply to an inquirer in a coffee house when an imbecile asked, well, what is in the Quran? In the Quran, said the Bektashi, there are two pressed flowers and a letter from my friend Abdullah. (laughs) For most people I know, conscious relationship is both the biggest challenge in life, and also the living expression of spiritual practice. And in a very real way, it weds this kind of open, mindful clarity, this open awareness, with our profound urge to commune with the mystery, to commune with the sacred, with the beloved, in whatever form we sense that. It's that coming together. And in a way, this is the meaning of refuge in Sangha. We take refuge in the community of beings, in our interconnectedness. And it can be meant in a very formal way as refuge in those kindred spirits that are walking the same formal path, but also in a much more broad way kind of the way the Lakota Indians describe it, Om Matakuyas and all my relations, this earth and all the life on this earth and all life everywhere is our larger Sangha. So just to invite you to begin this, this evening's talk with a reflection on who is your Sangha? In a more immediate way, who do you belong to? With Who are the beings that reflect back your sense of who you are? 
that inspire or challenge you, that you're engaged with. Sensing the beings where there's some intimacy, those where you wish there might be more. So we invite our relations, we invite the presence of these beings as we explore the meaning of taking refuge in Sangha. The Dalai Lama says, if I am to eliminate my own suffering, I must act in the knowledge that I exist in dependent relationships with other human beings and the whole of nature. He described in that same talk how the need for love really lies at the foundation of human existence, that we are connected and our need is to be who we are, which is in love, to experience that connectedness. And when we don't, when there's not a sense of relatedness, there's suffering. And we can look back over these weeks and sense the moments when we were in the greatest pain is when in some way we were cut off from our inner life, not really connected with what was happening, not really open to it, cut off in the sense of feeling that what's happening is owned by a self, caused by a self, in some ways separate. And then cut off, because usually when we're feeling that distance from our own inner life, that lack of wholeness, we feel alien in our larger community. There's a sense of not belonging, a discomfort, a lack of ease. Now, in our daily life, that sense of being alienated, disconnected, is sometimes less conscious but usually more pervasive because we cover it up with our busyness. We're usually going places and doing things. It's a little harder to disguise our loneliness when we pay attention in the deep way we've been paying attention here. I mentioned um, last week at some time how we take cover in daily life and it's kind of like having a spacesuit that's going after what seems pleasant and avoiding what's unpleasant. It's kind of an armoring. And our extended armoring, our spaceships, are those metal bubbles that we cruise around in when we're going places. And for me, sometimes the most dramatic expression of how separate we feel is um, when we're driving around. There's a sense that uh, the other cars we see, the people in them are their cars and they're separate and they're out there and that traffic is happening out there and we don't want to get mixed up in it and we talk about traffic like it's the enemy and like others are the traffic and don't realize that we're traffic too you know we are traffic so I remember Ajahn Amro came to DC and he started talking about how everybody is traffic but thinks the other one is traffic and (laughs) imagined us driving around really getting it, that we belong to this mass of humanity. There's a a little cartoon from some New York magazine 
A woman fainted when a man offered her a seat on the subway. (laughs) When she recovered, she thanked him and he fainted. (laughs) We don't expect people to relate nicely. Now, so being awake, when we're very wakeful, we start sensing connectedness, and it's a really wonderful description from one of the Zen patriarchs is that there's no way to distinguish between true awareness and kindness. That when we're really awake, we naturally feel connected and there's a natural kindness. We don't hurt others, ourselves, because we belong. When my son was about six years old, we got him one of those ant farms that a lot of children get. And he was really fascinated by it. And he'd spent a lot of hours tracking where the tunnels were going. And he even got to know which ant was which, or so he thought. And he, he was really involved with them. And I'll never forget him coming back, I think he was first grade, from school, being so distraught that classmates would step on ants because he had a relationship with them. They became real. And it's true, you can't imagine in war that anybody would be able to kill another person if they were able to be a fly on a wall and really watch that other being and sense their life and really sense it from the inside that this being is real. We're just not violent if we're connected. Last spring, I took my aunt and uncle to the Holocaust Museum. It was their first time there, and they really wanted to go. And they're quite elderly. She's in her 80s, and he's about 94. But he's very functional. He still rides a bike. And um, so we went, and and it was interesting to me because we we didn't have much of a relationship. I had never really spent much time with them. And this was quite an intense thing to do with people that you don't know that well in some way. And it was, as I knew it to be, an amazingly moving experience. But what most struck me was the sense of connection between us and also the the group of the herd that was going through with us at that time, that we were together bearing witness to such suffering. There's this kind of natural shared intimacy of just bearing witness together. It's so easy to get into that habit of feeling separate and in our bubble and that we're handling our particular pains and difficulties and challenges on our own. We can feel that here when it gets difficult. It's like all of a sudden the vulnerability makes us very small and separate. At the, la- at the last part of this presentation at the Holocaust Museum, the very last wing of the, of the presentation, there was a written all over in this, on this very large wall a quote from Martin Niemöller. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but I'll read it to you. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. 
Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. There's no us-them. We are truly interdependent. And when we forget that, we suffer. And when we remember and discover that truth, our natural response is caring. The Sanskrit word ahimsa, there's, there's a natural non-violence which really reveres and senses the preciousness of life. How we go about discovering and really sensing that relatedness is exactly the same practice that we do here on the cushion and walking in relating to our inner life. It's as the Buddha described it, the two wings of practice. We see what's true, what's really true within us, with others that are with us, and we hold in compassion. We relate with a quality of kindness. Understanding and cherishing. One way to consider all communications is that the purpose is understanding. That we're perceiving what's true and expressing what's true as well as possible. These are kind of the active and receptive qualities of of attention. So just to explore listening, we've practiced so much these last weeks with that quality of receptive listening to our inner life. And one of the first parts of our training is to establish the breath at the center of attention so we can wake up out of thoughts, not be lost in the story, so we can really listen and sense the movement of the breath right this moment, the sounds around us, the moods in our body, We establish an embodied presence because to listen, we need to be here to really experience this moment fully. This is from Rumi. There is a way between voice and presence where information flows. In disciplined silence, it opens. With wandering talk, it closes. So we practice this receptive and listening attention. I'd like to read to you just a piece of a story that to me was so inspiring about the power of presence when we're really listening. And this is a story about Yeshi Dundon, who is the personal physician to the Dalai Lama. And it's written by Richard Seltzer, who's a doctor. And at his hospital, uh, Yeshi was invited to come. And he was invited to, in some way, examine a patient that the staff there had selected. But he wasn't told what the diagnosis was. So in a way, they were kind of testing him and curious to see how he would go about finding out who this person was and what her problem was. Yeshi Dundon steps to the bedside while the rest stand apart watching. For a long time he gazes at the woman, favoring no part of her body with his eyes, but seeming to fix his glance at a place just above 
her supine body. I too study her. No physical sign or obvious symptom gives a clue to the nature of her disease. At last he takes her hand, raising it in both of his own. Now he bends over the bed in a kind of crouching stance, his head drawn down into the collar of his robe. His eyes are closed as he feels for her pulse. In a moment he has found the spot, and for the next half hour he remains thus, suspended above the patient like some exotic golden bird with folded wings, holding the pulse of the woman beneath his fingers, cradling her hand in his. All the power of the man seems to have been drawn down into this one purpose. It is palpitation of the pulse raised to the state of ritual. From the foot of the bed where I stand, it is as though he and the patient have entered a very special place of isolation, of apartness, about which a vacancy hovers, and across which no violation is possible. After a moment, the woman rests back upon her pillow. From time to time, she raises her head to look at the strange figure above her, then sinks back once more. I cannot see their hands joined in a correspondence that is exclusive, intimate, his fingertips receiving the voice of her sick body through the rhythm and throb she offers at her wrist. All at once I am envious, not of him, not of Yeshi Dundon for his gift of beauty and holiness, but of her. I want to be held like that, touched so, received. And I know that I, who have palpated a hundred thousand pulses, have not felt a single one. At last, Yeshi Dundon straightens, gently places the woman's hand upon the bed and steps back. The interpreter produces a small wooden bowl and two sticks. Yeshi Dundon pours a portion of the urine specimen into the bowl and proceeds to whip the liquid with two sticks. This he does for several minutes until a foam is raised. Then, bowing above the bowl, he inhales the odor three times. He sets down the bowl and turns to leave. All this while, he's not uttered a single word. As he nears the door, the woman raises her head and calls out to him in a voice at once urgent and serene. Thank you, doctor, she says, and touches with her other hand the place he had held on her wrist as though to recapture something that had visited there. Yes, she turns back for a moment to gaze at her, then steps into the corridor, rounds her at an end. A little bit later in this, he speaks then to the group of what he has found. He speaks of winds coursing through the body of the woman, currents that break against barriers eddying, These vortices are in her blood, he says, the last spendings of an imperfect heart. Between the chambers of the heart, long, long before she was born, a wind had come and blown open a deep gate that must never be opened. Through it charged the full waters of her river as the mountain stream cascades in the springtime, battering, knocking loose the land and flooding her breath. Thus he speaks, and now he is silent. May we now have the diagnosis, the professor asks. Then the man who knows the answer says, congenital heart disease, interventricular septal defect with resultant heart failure. But I think, ah, a gateway in the heart that must not be opened, 
through it charges the full waters that flood her breath. So, here then is the doctor, listening to the sounds of the body to which the rest of us are deaf. He is more than a doctor. He is a priest. I know, I know. The doctor to the gods is pure knowledge, pure healing. The doctor to man stumbles, most often wound. His patient must die, as must he. Now and then it happens, as I make my own rounds, that I hear the sounds of his voice like an ancient Buddhist prayer, its meaning long since forgotten, only the music remaining. Then a jubilation possesses me, and I feel myself touched by something divine. There's a quality of listening when it's deep and it's wholehearted that is exactly the same as offering a blessing. It's the blessing of sacred presence. And yet it still has that receptive quality, simply listening. Part of our communication is that, and part is to express what seems true. This is the active part of speaking, which we do so much in our daily lives, and which so much of is done unconsciously. So our practice is to bring mindfulness to that, and it can be if all we do is pay attention, really pay attention to our words and where they come from, a radically transformative practice. The Buddha gave two simple guidelines, to speak what's true and to speak what's helpful. But they're guidelines that, as anyone might tell, require a huge amount of wise discrimination, because what seems to be true often might not be helpful. We know that. We also know that sometimes we have all sorts of thoughts that go through and emotions that go through that don't need to be reported, that aren't going to be helpful in that way. And yet at other times, what might be hurtful is what's most needed to help to make a person aware, perhaps, of some addiction or shadow side that's really hurting them, some destructive behavior. It's really a difficult call and one that takes a lot of attention. It's not healthy to expose our vulnerability to an untrustworthy person. It's not always helpful to say what's so. I gave this talk about wise speech at one point in Washington, D.C., and somebody gave me this story about California, which that's all we read about in Washington. <laughs> A California policeman pulled over a car and told the driver that because he had been wearing his seatbelt, he had just won $5,000 in the statewide safety competition. (laughs) Do you guys really have that? (laughs) What are you going to do with the money, asked the policeman. Well, I guess I'm going to go get myself a driver's license, he answered. (laughs) Oh, don't listen to him, said the woman in the passenger seat. He's a smart aleck when he's drunk. (laughs) 
This woke up the guy in the back seat who took one look at the cop and moaned, I knew he wouldn't get far in this stolen car. <laughs> and at that moment, there was a knock from the trunk and a voice said in Spanish, are we over the border yet? <laughs> only in California, right? <laughs> so speaking the truth can get you in trouble. The guidelines on mindful speaking really are case by case, moment by moment. So for me, just to mention a few ways that help me in discriminating, in knowing what to say, when to say things. One of my touchstones is to ask myself what my intention is. And I forget a lot to do that, but when I remember, I'm always glad. Especially when it's a very sensitive kind of conversation. What's my intent? Really, is there an agenda? Is the intention towards freedom? Towards helping? Or is there some other agenda of getting something for myself, self-aggrandizement, whatever? And then a related touchstone is, what's the probable outcome? Will this serve awakening? And I find that's a really helpful one, just to ask that in a sincere way. Will this in some way serve awakening? The only way to, for me to do that, to ask those questions, is to stay very much in my body. And that's something that you'll be hearing a lot in these next few days about moving into the world, that to be here, to be present, to listen, to speak wisely, all requires a very real and embodied kind of presence. If we're connected in a, in a very genuine way to our aspiration for healing, to be helpful, to be connected with others, then that intention will actually guide our speech and plant the very seeds that we want to plant. So intention is a really centerpiece, this intention to be helpful. Some time ago, Joanna Macy was in Washington, and she told this story, which is part of the legend of the Holy Grail, which I really love and I'd like to share with you. And it has to do with Parsifal, who was a knight of the round table, who went off on a quest. And he found himself in the middle of a devastated area where nothing grows. And this kind of represents our inner wasteland and the outer wasteland. It's the world of woundedness. So there he go- here he goes. He's on this quest. And he gets to the capital, which is the castle of the Fisher King. And rather than being upset about this wasteland over which he rules, the ruler is lying, weakened. He was in some way wounded in the groin, and he's at death's door. And like the land, he had lost his power of regeneration. And then the people around him, and the people outside the castle, were, they weren't saying, oh, this is terrible, let's do something. Rather, they were going around business as usual, as if everything was normal. They were living habitually and behaving as if they were under some sort of a spell or trance, which they were. Now, we know what this is like, especially if we've been in a dysfunctional family, that we operate as usual, as normal, even though some horrendous things can be going on. It's almost like survival. We go into a trance. 
Now what's interesting is Parsifal had been warned beforehand that there was a spell and that he could break it. But he couldn't break it by being smart or by trying to fix anything. The way he could break it was by asking questions in a sincere way from his heart. But as the story goes, when Parsifal was young, his mom had told him that it was rude to ask questions. So he didn't do that. He didn't ask any questions and nothing happened and he went on. Now, as it happens in these myths, if you fail a test, you end up being confronted with it again. And he was confronted by Kundri, a witch-like sorceress that he met, who castigated him for not having the common compassion to ask people questions. So Parsifal turns around and goes back to the wasteland, and goes back to the castle of the Fisher King. And without even breaking a stride, he walks right up to where the king is lying on the couch. Then he kneels, pauses, and in a very sincere way says, Oh, my lord, what aileth thee? And at that very moment, the color comes back to the king's cheeks and he stands up. He stands up. It's like somebody cared enough to ask that life was regenerated, that there was a healing in the moment that somebody had the kindness to say, what matters? What, what's the problem? What's bothering you? And we know what that's like when we're hurting but bound up and things are stuffed down deep. And if we get into an atmosphere where there's a person or a space that there's really genuine caring, it's like the flood banks can break open and there's this sense of it's okay to be tender, which of course is the pathway to healing. So this is communicating care. It's as Mother Teresa described it, that kind words can be short and easy to speak, but their echoes are truly endless. Now it's natural as we move into speaking with each other and in the world that we'll go back into our habitual trances. And there's all different kinds, and I'll mention a few. Like Parsifal, we might be reluctant to engage I would just get caught in in that kind of habit of distancing from others. We're not aware so much of how protective we are, of how there's some underlying feeling of vulnerability and that we need to protect our our boundaries. I heard a wonderful story about Postmaster General Edwin Day, and he describes his tactic of distancing. He says when he's on the phone with someone that really is into talking to him, what he'll do is he'll hang up the phone when he is in the middle of saying something. He, the you know, postmaster general. Because who would suspect that someone would hang up on themselves, right? <laughs> Good tactic, isn't it? <laughs> You're in the middle of a sentence and you just put the phone down. <laughs> I thought that was a great one. <laughs> so we have subtle and not-so-subtle ways of keeping our distance. And what really happens is we just have ways of staying on the surface because it seems either dangerous or in some way not okay to be more real. There is a saying that dying starts at birth but accelerates at dinner parties. (laughs) And Annie Lindbergh says, the most exhausting thing in my life is being insincere. And we know what that's like. There's some way that it wears us down when we're not being real. So what happens is 
part of the way that we go about avoiding conflicts or discomfort is we do these habitual ways of speaking, staying superficial, staying busy, or as many do, using alcohol or food or whatever to kind of, in some way, numb the discomfort because it's difficult to be real. We want to be real, but we're afraid. And then, and I, I, I happen to very much believe for many people antidepressants are quite helpful, but I went to a conference and I'm not sure if I told you all this, but it's so great. There was this poster that said, if there was Prozac back then, did I tell you this? No, this is good. It was, it was a list of all the changes in the world that might have happened if there was Prozac back then. And it describes Karl Marx saying, hmm, capitalism, it could work out if we just tweak it a bit. <laughs> then it goes on to Edgar Allan Poe, who's looking at this raven saying, hello, birdie. <laughs> <laughs> So we have these ways of numbing ourselves, of covering, of keeping superficial, but our most probably um, painful and chronic way of not being real and of maintaining separations by the judgments and the blaming that goes on in our minds and hearts. This is probably the key way that we block intimacy. And it's very it's a very interesting and rich territory to explore. I know some people that do regular checks with themselves to sense, okay, is there judgment right now? I do it at the end of day sometimes. How am I, a kind of a forgiveness sweep, am I holding against myself? Because usually if I'm in some way feeling depressed, it's because I'm judging myself for not being okay. We judge ourselves and we judge others. Now, an interesting inquiry, and you can check this out if there's someone that's part of your circle that you are going home to and where there's a lot of blaming that goes on, is to just investigate what would I have to feel if I wasn't blaming? What else is there if blaming isn't the predominant activity? You can just explore that I'll tell you a story about myself, which is that with my son, who's now 13, a couple of years ago we started into the phase of the battle around homework, and I found that all I'd be doing is walking towards his room and I'd be gearing up to in some way tell him how if you don't do this then you can't do that and you have to get, and I was like, I was already kind of readying myself for the war zone and for his resistance. and. even though I was often right that he hadn't done and he shouldn't do more of the computer and phones and tell, my tone and my vibration was angry and controlling. So I went on this kind of practice where no matter what, before I'd walk into his room and say anything, I would pause. I'd just stop and I'd check into my body and just sense, okay, so what's happening? What's really my intention right now? what's asking for attention in me. What I found is that under all that controlling, angry behavior was this real fear. And the fear was that in some way he was going to fail and his life would be miserable if I didn't X, Y, and Z take control. It was really helpful to sense that 
how much fear was underneath my behavior, because then I could connect with it. I could be with it. I could actually sense some freedom around it, so I was able to be more flexible, more creative in how I approached him. If the fear remained out of awareness, I would have been locked in the behavior. So part of working with our habitual ways of judging and blaming is really to learn to pause and not act, especially when it's in one of those conflictual interactions. We need, much like children do when they, at school, they get their timeouts, we really need to pause and find out what's true right now. So that's the first step in terms of working with whatever separates us from others, whenever there's conflict, whenever there's blame, to pause. The second is to be able, and this is exactly the same as we do with our inner life, to be able to name what's going on. Sometimes we'll be naming it to ourselves, but if we're in a relationship and there's a container for the dialogue, to name out loud what's going on can be a really powerful way of loosening the identification, giving more freedom. The night before their marriage, they held a ritual where they made their shadow vows. The groom said, I will give you an identity and make the world see you as an extension of myself. (laughs) The bride replied, I will be compliant and sweet, but underneath I will have the real control. If anything goes wrong, I'll take your money and your house. Then they drank their champagne and laughed heartily at their foibles, knowing that in the course of their marriage, these shadow figures would inevitably come out. They were ahead of the game because they had recognized the shadow and unmasked it. That's Robert Johnson. There's a great power in relationships to bringing our mutual attention to what's true and naming it out loud. Just as we hold what is happening in our inner life in mindfulness, we can enlarge that space of the mindfulness with this shared awareness, and then just notice what's happening in that. Michael Mead describes a tribe in Africa that has a ritual around what's called the ancestor's tooth. And what happens is if somebody in the tribe gets sick, it's assumed that the energy of that tooth is some way caught in that person. And so what happens is the whole tribe gathers, and there's a night of chanting and drumming and singing and crying and laughing and whatever, and mostly people all speak of the difficult truths that are in everyone in the tribe. And it's understood that this energy of the ancestor's tooth cannot be freed up until all these painful truths are recognized, brought into the light of their shared awareness. This is really the same dynamic of healing that we have in our friendships, when we can name what's true and hold that, and in therapy relationships. Any healing relationship creates a safe container that allows what's happening to be there. It's the power of 12-step groups that one can go into that setting and really speak of the horrific experiences of shame and addictive behavior and self-judgment, and because it's being held in this very accepting field of attention, 
and because others are also saying where they have felt completely um, demeaned and diminished and out of control, there's a sense of it's not my pain, but the pain. It's the addictive energy. It's not owned so much by a self, and therefore it's not so imprisoning. This is the power of sharing with each other. Before coming here, I was having a, an experience with a, a colleague and a friend who, uh, where there was this kind of growing tension. And we really didn't have time to talk for a while, so it kind of kept growing. It proliferated because we weren't doing anything about it. So eventually we sat down together and kind of did a, a formal interpersonal meditation where we sat with each other for five minutes silently, just kind of eyes into eyes. This is from the Diamond Heart tradition, just a way of, of being with and airing what's there. And then we spoke, and we just spoke mindfully. It was just the simplicity of mindfulness, just speaking, Here, here's what feels true to me, and listening with mindfulness. And then the other would speak, just back and forth until there was nothing left to say. And then we closed with five more minutes of just sitting in silence. And it was just such a way of deepening my faith in the power of, of mindfulness in relationships to sense the difference between the first five minutes and the last five minutes. That in the first there was a sense of all my vulnerability and, and kind of a needing to protect or defend and, and just really feeling apart from. And in the last five minutes, vulnerability was still there but more there was a sense of resting in this shared awareness that had made room for our vulnerability. There was kind of a shift from foreground to background so that my identity wasn't as wrapped around the vulnerability as the awareness that was allowing for it to be there. So we practice with the people that feel safe and trustworthy, being more and more real, saying what's true, holding a space of care. And this too takes wise discrimination. I know many people that in the urgency to be real have, have um, tried to put out things in situations where they've been hurt. In one cartoon, bears have trapped this guy and they have him hanging from a tree. And here's what it says underneath. The bears are speaking. He says his name is Bradshaw and that he can see that we came from dysfunctional single-parent dens, that our behaviors are shame-based. He urges us to let our inner cub heal. I say we eat him. <laughs> so it doesn't always work, too. <laughs> okay, so we pause when there's intensity, when there's conflict, which is just how it is. I mean, if we're embodied, there's conflict. We pause, we name what's real, and then the practice is just to hold that in a very accepting space. To forgive or allow what's there. In a way, it's like saying yes to what's there, and it doesn't mean we have to like it, it doesn't mean it's not painful, but the space of relating, the depth of intimacy is how much can this container include? Can we say yes to what's here? I think in the first talk I described 
this one line that made such an impression on me that was really had to do with that the boundary to what we can accept is the boundary to our freedom. And what we find is that the boundary that we most frequently encounter is in interpersonal relationships. If we're really looking at how much can I accept, it's going to be what comes up in our relationships that show us where our edges are. So it's an amazingly powerful terrain to practice opening beyond where we resist, surrendering and becoming larger. What makes it possible, what makes it possible to include what's here within ourselves or with another person is when we can truly see and understand who that person is. We usually latch on to just, we fixate our attention to this behavior, this pattern of behaviors, this part of the spacesuit. So when we can really get who is that being, really, then there's room in our hearts for the vulnerability and what we call the imperfections. When I was in my early 20s, I was doing some tenants' rights organizing and working with a lot of different tenants' groups on um, rent control campaigns, and we were building unions and so on. And we had this experience where every time we'd build a really solid group or union of tenants, the landlord would go to the family where the, who was the leader of the union, and then offer these like sweet deals, like little perks, and co-op that person, and then the union would fall apart. And this happened again and again, that there would be this solid union, but then the families were poor, and they'd, the landlord would buy off in some way a central person. Well, one time when I was working with these groups of families, I got really close with the family that was spearheading that drive, and I got to know them well. I went to dinner at their house, and got to know their kids and knew that the wife had cancer, that one of the sons was in jail, they were in debt, and I, I just knew their situation from the inside. And when they were bought off, I couldn't turn them into the enemy. I, I just knew them too well. I knew them more from the inside, and they had a, a face and a heart. And my experience is that when we hold a person off at a distance, as in some way the other or an enemy, it's because we're not really allowing the realness of that being to be in our awareness. I've seen so much in couples' work, and this is really um, a powerful way to bring a wakefulness into relating, that there's a standoff when the other is not understood, but if there's a way of having them switch roles, in other words, having one kind of inhabit the other's awareness by imagining, okay, I'm this person, and here's what life is like for me, and and speak from that person's awareness, and really try to go inside that awareness, there's a way that, that you can register the pain and the realness of your partner that opens up the doors of the heart. It's as Thoreau said, Could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through each other's eyes for an instant? You 
in a way, as we begin to pay attention and really connect with all the different vulnerability and fear and hope of our own being, we learn to have the space to be able to do just that, to sense and connect with what's true for another person. We sense that each, to each being, this life is incredibly precious, that each has the same love or longing for love that's so compelling. Mother Teresa writes, when Christ said, I was hungry and you fed me, he didn't mean only the hunger for bread and for food. He also meant the hunger to be loved. Jesus himself experienced this loneliness. He came amongst his own and his own received him not and it hurt him then and it has kept on hurting him. The same hunger, the same loneliness, the same having no one to be accepted by and no one to be loved and wanted by. Every human being in that case resembles Christ in his loneliness. And that is the hardest part. That's the real hunger. So the truth is that all the intensity that we experience within our being, this changing flow of emotions and sensations and thoughts and stories, everybody else is having the same thing happening. And that experience of the mystery of being here, that when we really pay attention, there's no self that we can find, that there's just awareness, that too is the truth in each of what we consider to be other. It's so amazing if we can begin to sense that really each of us is having the same basic experience. We're experiencing awareness, experiencing. Sri Narsargadatta, wonderful teacher of sacred emptiness and of the essential non-dual teachings, he was asked a question about how to deal with the sense of separation that the small mind feels in relationship. And his response was, just let go of every thought except, I am God, you are God. Just imagine if we could move through our life and, as I was describing it, namaste, really sensing the divine spark, what Meriden describes as the transparent divine that radiates through all beings. I am God, you are God. The truth that most profoundly relaxes the grip of feeling separate, blaming, distant, (coughs) is the truth of mortality. We sit here and we can sense impermanence when we look within ourselves, and when we bring that same (coughs) mindfulness that same wakefulness to attend to each other, we sense we're all this changing process of experiencing, and we're all dying every day. Life is passing through us, by us, and we'll all leave these physical forms. So there's this incredible power to being able to perceive beings and really sense that we're all going to die, that we are dying. Og Mandino writes, beginning today, 
treat everyone you meet as if he or she were going to be dead by midnight. Extend to them all the care, kindness, and understanding you can muster, and do so with no thought of any reward. Your life will never be the same again. Thich Nhat Hanh, in his uh, retreat, sometimes teaches this way of hugging, where you first bow, namaste, namaste, you know, really see the other being, and then hold each other and take a few full breaths. And as you're breathing, there's this reflecting of, I'm going to die, and you're going to die, and we have these sacred moments together. Conscious relationship means to really cherish this moment that we don't have so long, so allowing this moment to really be alive and wakeful and true. A couple of years ago, one of my son's classmates was killed in a car accident. And I remember afterwards, for the weeks that followed, all the parents just kind of hugging and cherishing their children. They just, you know, really um, realizing the preciousness of the moments. And it doesn't take that, that type of a tragedy to remind us. I mean, it's quite a beautiful practice if you want to this moment, just a sense of being in your life and imagine and sense that you're holding them in some way, energetically or physically, and just reflecting. It's impermanent. We don't have so long, but we have these moments. What we find is that as we reflect on our relationships, that we hold our dear ones in our heart, that who we perceive as other is really the beloved. It's, we're in love. It's living love. And awakening through relationships is this realization that our loved ones, our sangha, are not out there. Just as we describe that everything is in awareness, everything is in mind, everything is also in heart. I'd like to read to you a response from Punjaji when he was asked about, well, what happens about those who die? What happens to our love then? And he says, who was without is still within your heart in a subtle form. This subtle form never died. When you look within, you will see. You also must become subtle, and you will see the subtle form of everybody whom you have loved, who you love now. When you love someone, even though they are dead, you can see them with your eyes closed. Even in sleep, you can see them in dreams. But the love must be very intimate love, true love. When you love someone truly from the bottom of your heart, that person can never be absent from you. relationship with the actual beings of our life is the path of uniting the personal with the universal. Because what we discover as we connect with each other, as we relax resistance, 
as we soften our armor, as we open, what we discover is we're really surrendering into the mystery, into just being in love. It's through this practice of conscious relationship that pure awareness and pure love become indistinguishable, become the same. So we'll close with just a brief meditation, a brief sitting, if you will. Just take a few full breaths. And in the spirit of, of this talk, this is just a very simple kind of a metta or loving-kindness practice of bringing whoever comes to mind naturally into awareness and sense how they are alive this moment in your heart. If, as you reflect, there's any sense of separation, just sense how this relationship might serve to awaken heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.